This episode is brought to you by Inland Green Capital. Earlier this month, Britain's Queen Elizabeth died, marking the end of an era that had spanned seven decades and a shift in power from one monarch to the next. This has been the focus of much of the nation's grief and it is Buckingham Palace more than anywhere which is so closely associated with the Queen. Britain has been in over a week of official mourning and a series of ancient traditions have taken place. One million people are expected to pack the area around Westminster Abbey and along the procession route for the Queen's state funeral Monday. The shift comes with a change in who controls what wealth within the family and it provides a chance to take a deeper look in the ways in which the British royals hold their power. A large part of it comes from, you guessed it, real estate. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall, and on this episode, I'm joined by our UK editor, Mike Phillips, and Manchester and Birmingham reporter, David Tame, to talk us through the Crown's property holdings. When it comes to royal real estate, you're probably familiar with places like, famously, Buckingham Palace and Balmoral. But there's a key difference between those two. Balmoral is privately owned by the family, passed on like any valuable piece of real estate would be in any wealthy family. Buckingham Palace, however, has a different setup. It's owned in trust by what's known as the Crown Estate, which is actually a property company that's very unique. It really is a property company like no other in the world. It traces some of its portfolio back to Edward the Confessor, so that's the kind of 7th, 8th century. And the majority of its portfolio, the ownership by the British Crown, dates back to around 1066, so that's the time of William the Conqueror. So that's almost a thousand years of, uh, of history. Mike Phillips is our UK editor, and he's written about the holdings of the Crown Estate. It shares its profits between the royal family and the UK Treasury. So the royal family takes 25% of the profits earned. That's called the Sovereign Grant, and last year it returned £78 million to the Queen. I mean, it's absolutely huge. It's, uh, it's sort of valued about £15.6 billion as of March of this year, and um, it's, a, it's a real, it's a, as you would imagine, for a portfolio that's been built up over a thousand years, it's an incredibly um, eclectic portfolio with some, with some really incredible things in it. So Regent Street, which many of the listeners might have been down, that's the main one of the main shopping thoroughfares in London. It sold off a, a stake in that to Norge Bank Investment Management uh, in the middle of the last decade. It owns the parkland around Windsor Castle. It owns some regional retail assets. So it owns a retail park portfolio across the UK, which led to a brilliant piece of journalism. Back in the middle of the last decade, the Sun mocked up a picture of the Queen in a McDonald's outfit because it had a McDonald's on it. So a little bit less reverent back then, uh, the coverage of Her Majesty um, at that time. And it also owns the seabed of the UK out to a distance of 12 nautical miles. And on that, it has built a very large and very, very profitable offshore wind business. And for decades and decades, those central London retail and office assets were by far the biggest part of the portfolio. And they still are at about 7.7 billion. But that offshore wind portfolio was valued at about 5.5 billion in the last set of accounts. And, you know, that grew at 22% last year versus, you know, London's portfolio, even in a good year, is only going to grow at kind of 5 or 10 percent a year. So that offshore wind business is going to be is going to be by far the largest part of the portfolio quite soon, which is obviously fantastic in terms of 
climate change and decarbonizing the British electricity grid. Um, and also, you know, a big, big change in the last kind of 30, 40 years for the, uh, for the estate. It's actually quite a progressive company, particularly for one that's almost a thousand years old. It was ahead of its time with the flexible office boom, for example, offering rolling leases in buildings. Right now, it's run by the former head of Europe for Lendlease, but previously it was run by a woman by the name of Alison Nimmo, making it at the time one of the few significant UK real estate companies with female leadership. So it's got independent people running it. Are they consulting with the monarchy about decisions they might make about the portfolio, about the tenants they might put in about the acquisitions they might make absolutely not and you know if you ever talk to anyone at the crown estate they are very very quick and uh keen to stress that it's run it's run by an independent board and it is sort of entirely independent of the uh of the monarchy um i mean in terms of its in terms of that that profit split um i think i think in the last set of accounts it said the the, the payment going back to the to the monarch was about 83 million and it was about sort of 250 odd million going back to the UK treasury and over the last decade it's returned about 3 billion pounds to the to the treasury so there's a kind of a split benefit here money goes to the crown uh, money goes to the monarchy but also goes to the british public absolutely yeah those payments to the treasury have totaled about three billion pounds over the uh, over the last decade and that's a sort of core part of the of the kind of articles of association and the kind of raison d'etre for the crown estate is to sort of return that money to the uh, to the treasury with a team that collectively has more than 50 years of commercial real estate finance experience Inland Green Capital can provide funds for commercial CPACE projects and is a leader in advancing clean energy and sustainability. Our clients benefit from our expertise gathered over decades of real estate finance activity and the experience we've gained from closing hundreds of CPACE financings in programs across the country. Head to inlandgreencapital.com. Inland Green Capital, investing in a green future. So Charles is now the reigning monarch to whom the spoils of the crown estate flow. He's not just the king either, he's also the Duke of Lancaster. Before, when he was a Prince of Wales, he was the Duke of Cornwall. That means he now has the Duchy of Lancaster and has passed the Duchy of Cornwall onto his son William. Duchy just means dukedom. These separate duchies give the sovereign and their heir separate funds and assets for which to work and play. David Tame, our Birmingham reporter, breaks it down. If you've followed your history, you'll know that Hanoverian monarchs in particular, but uh, British monarchs down through the generations, the heir to the throne and the occupant of the throne have rarely been on good terms with one another. And it was decided a very long time ago that it was sensible if he didn't have to go to daddy and ask for money. The duchy was established 700 years ago and is there to provide income to the king or the queen, though the king or the queen isn't entitled to any of the capital assets just the income. The Duchy of Cornwall is there to provide the heir to the throne with some independent pocket money, and it's quite substantial amounts. Now, the Duchy of Lancaster is a different kettle of fish altogether. The Duchy of Lancaster is two counties in the northwest of England, Cheshire and Lancashire. And they're not just a duchy, but they're a duchy palatinate, which means that they have some of the properties of an independent country. Now, only a very small number of these still exist, but they are very real. So, for instance, the Duchy of Cornwall has the right of Bonavacantia, which means that if you die in the Duchy of Lancaster, then you are your estate is forfeited to the Duke of Lancaster. 
The Duke of Lancaster is always the crown since John of Gaunt became muddled in with the crown long ago, John of Gaunt. It has the peculiar effect that in Lancaster, when you go to a formal dinner, the toast at the end is never to the king or to the queen. It is always to the Duke of Lancaster. And it doesn't matter what sex the king or queen is, they are always the Duke of Lancaster. So we've just swapped a female Duke of Lancaster for a male Duke of Lancaster. We don't have duchesses of Lancaster, they just don't exist. Um, It's worth about 650 million. Most of that is sand because it's 36,000 hectares of foreshore. uh, so about eighty, ninety thousand 90,000 acres of foreshore and, and about 45,000 acres of mostly upland farmland. Uh, it does own some other slightly odd things. I was trying to work this out today because they're very discreet about this, but I think they own Keel services on the M6 motorway, um, which is uh, it's where you go for a wee when you're on a long journey. Uh, so the, the Duchy of Lancaster owns that. They also own some uh, fairly ugly warehouses. Well, I don't know, mustn't be too presumptive, but moderately ugly warehouses in Liverpool and Blackburn. Um, and a little tiny bit of London, uh, the Savoy Hotel. Well, they don't own the Savoy Hotel, but they do own all the land between the Savoy Hotel and Waterloo Bridge, which John of Gaunt once owned because that was the liberty of the Savoy and it's still part of the Duchy of Lancaster. So it's a, a very odd beast. Produces for the, for the monarch about 20 to £30 million pounds worth of income a year. And unlike the Crown Estate, this has no public, there's no claim of public benefit here. It's just there so that the monarchy can be adequately supported in its public functions. Uh, they could spend it on whatever they like. Um, and presumably they do. We don't know. So it's not like the Crown Estate at all. They don't share anything with the UK Treasury. No. It's the Duchy of Lancaster. It's a remnant of a previous way of understanding how power and property was organised. So it's a, a palatinate duchy, um, uh, like perhaps if you imagine the role of princes in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the emperor was in charge, but you have your little prince bishops all over the place. Well, the Duchy of Lancaster is, is the remnant of one of those. Prince William just scored a new piece of property, and it's worth over a billion dollars. Yeah, that's billion with a B. Now that Prince William is the Prince of Wales, he is taking on the Duchy of Cornwall. That revenue from the duchy can be spent any way he wants. Fund the charity work, use it for the private life of his family. While much of the royal family's wealth is kept in secrecy, experts have been able to piece together just how much each member is worth. And with the In all, the duchy royal... has about 53,000 hectares of land in 23 counties in the UK. And according to its website, its principal activity has been sustainable commercial management of land and properties. The Duchy of Cornwall is um, more conceptual as duchies go rather than the very real Duchy of Lancaster. So the Duchy of Cornwall does indeed own some property in Cornwall, generally not of very high value. And like the Duchy of Lancaster, it has foreshore rights. It owns the gap between the high tide and the low tide, so a great deal of sand. And they have the right as well to um, own wrecks on the coast of Cornwall. Um, Now, you might wonder what the virtue of owning wrecks on the coast of Cornwall was. 
well, of course, almost all trade crossing the Atlantic or moving um, into the into what was England or the Kingdom of Cornwall long ago um, has to pass a very rocky coast around Cornwall. So the wrecks there were often extremely valuable. So there's there's all that kind of stuff. But the rest of the duchy has been accumulated over the last two or three hundred years to meet the needs of the Hanoverian heirs to the throne. So what so a lot of what it owns is not in Cornwall or even real estate. It's simply a business vehicle. It's like a a, a corporate vehicle for the accumulation and management of the wealth of the heir to the throne. Um, I bumped into the Crown agent in Herefordshire, which is a very long way from Cornwall, and they still own all kinds of bits and pieces there. They also own things like um, biscuit companies, um, uh, clotted cream businesses. Um, they have a whole wealth of investments in all kinds of things. So it's it's much less a real estate business and more a kind of conglomerate, uh, a conceptual conglomerate of royal interests. Now that Prince William owns it, what could he shape it in a, a certain way as well? Uh, without a, without a doubt, because um, uh, Prince Charles certainly did. Uh, remember that the uh, Duchy of Cornwall was in abeyance when Princess Elizabeth, as she was, was heir to the throne. She wasn't created Princess of Wales, so it was left in the hands of a of a a, a board who just sort of kept things ticking over. Charles therefore inherited something that was very available for him to shape and mould, and he's had um, fifty years in which to shape and mould it. Um, William now gets a chance to play the same game, and it gives him the same platform the same independently wealthy platform from which to experiment so prince charles did um perhaps rather whimsical things like deciding that he would create a kind of miniature um, bath in dorset a nice little town full of georgian buildings called poundbury as a way of explaining that uh, we could all live in nice little georgian buildings in towns like poundbury if only planners would listen so he did that that was a fairly um a very personal bit of spending by the duchy of and there's no reason why William couldn't do the same. Perhaps he'll start a yurt business or, um, I don't know, I don't know where his interests lie. Helicopter business, who knows? This is the town that Prince Charles built. Three hours southeast of London, Poundbury is a social experiment. Poundbury is an extension of the town of Dorchester, which falls within the Duchy of Cornwall. It was the now King's pet project, a development built with his architecture principles in mind, dense, walkable and sustainable, though it's not been without its critics. The principles of Poundbury are simple, appealing varied architecture, everything within a 10 minute walk and homes and businesses on the same streets. Mike points out though how the King was talking 30 years ago, developers are talking now. The Poundbury project that David mentioned you know, really epitomised what Charles believed um, in terms of things like architecture and urban design. And if you, it's really interesting to see how that, that sort of change and, well, more how the perception of Charles has changed over the years. In the, in the, in the mid-1980s, he gave a very famous speech where he compared uh, an extension to the National Gallery to a, a carbuncle on the face of a much-loved friend. Uh, and he's a, been a very, very strong proponent for traditional and classical architecture over the years and a big, big critic of modern architecture. And for that, he was very, very firmly criticised. And, you know, he's in, intervened in other, you know, major projects, uh, usually with the result that kind of a scheme that he, he doesn't like the look of 
kind of gets gets pushed to the side and altered somewhat. And as uh, heir to the throne, and as David said, you know, expectation that the monarchy and the heir to the throne doesn't give a strong opinion on anything. He was pretty pretty criticised on that, and he and he wrote a book in the late eighties uh, called A Vision for Britain, uh, which put forward a lot of these ideas. Um, but sort of interestingly, fast forward to 2022, you know, the view on architecture, you know, some people will love modern architecture, some people will hate it, some people will love classical architecture, some people will hate it. But certainly in his views on urban planning and um, urban design and how how schemes, particularly schemes, large master plan schemes of scale should be should be sort of undertaken um you know the world has come round to him if you take any of those kind of big master plan schemes that call up, fall under that uh you know term that now sounds a bit naff sort of placemaking um a lot of the things that you know the the placemakers uh hold up as their central tenants things like walkability things about mix of uses rather than just sort of um, you know, kind of having one area for residential and one area for commercial, uh, affordability of housing, all of those things Charles was sort of talking about with Poundbury when that was first instigated in the in the mid 80s and sort of put forward in his uh, in his book. So the sort of world has come to him uh, and come round to his sort of view. And, and the same is absolutely true on sustainability. Um, you know, he was, you know, I can remember reading the newspapers in the 1990s and he was kind of categorised as a bit of a fruit loop. Things like talking to plants was what was were, were the things that were kind of very much picked up on. Um, but he has been a conservationist and uh, an environmentalist. All those terms that were the previous names that have now got wrapped up in that, in that term, um, you know, sort of climate campaigner. He has been sort of talking about this since the 1980s and 1990s long before the rest of the world sort of or a big slug of the rest of the world realized that this was going to be you know one of the challenges of uh, of our generation and the next generation we simply cannot maintain this course indefinitely to build a productive and sustainable future it is critical that we accelerate and mainstream sustainability into every aspect of our economy. Certainly before the real estate industry cottoned on and realized that this was not just a way of playing around the edges in terms of sustainability. This was going to be something that they needed to absolutely put at the centre of their business models. Otherwise, their businesses and their assets would become obsolete. Of course, the death of the Queen has invigorated debate once again about her role, particularly in the Commonwealth countries. And I've wondered if this re-examination of the wealth of the monarchy and their property holdings has inspired any commentary in the British press about what's fair. Normally in the UK, you'd pay a 40% tax on any part of an estate that you inherit that's valued at £325,000 or more, which is less than US dollars King Charles, however, won't be paying any of that tax. In the current climate, it's not really a question that's being raised. There's, there's definitely controversy about the fact that inheritance tax isn't paid. Something like the Crown Estate is more nuanced uh, because obviously the the treasury does get the majority of the benefit; they get sort of seventy five percent of the of the income of the of the profit from the estate. But obviously, there's a question about whether 
um, you know, if, if that was the estate of a normal private citizen over a thousand years, kind of, you know, inheritance tax and, and the various vagaries that happens to any family over over sort of hundreds of generations, uh, an estate like that simply wouldn't exist. It would kind of, you know, be broken up and and sort of taxed away. And so the public does get the benefit of it. But there is the fact that, um, you know, that that property, that land would have been owned by other people who would have paid taxes on it. And so, you know, the, the Treasury would benefit from it in a different way. So I think that's a, a philosophical question uh, around that. Um, and the fact that, you know, no inheritance taxes paid on those private estates is a, is a sort of similarly philosophical question. Earlier in the day, King Charles and Prince William were met with cheers as they surprised mourners waiting in the five-mile line. They shook hands and thanked people who'd been waiting, in some cases, throughout the night. I think when you're looking at royal involvement in property markets and the very complicated and antique structures that support the income of the crown, you're dealing with institutions which have one foot in a very deep and mysterious past and are slightly conditioned by that. And you have one where they are aggressively modern and intelligent businesses, where they're buying things that will generate very powerful returns. And the tension between these two is creates peculiar businesses. They are at once the most modern and socially conscious and thoughtfully managed affairs with a high degree of um, uh, public scrutiny. On the other hand, they are deeply mysterious, misted, almost mythical bodies whose entire function and purpose is unclear to almost everybody. And that that tension is part of the mystique of monarchy, and I don't think you can get rid of it. They, it is a peculiar mix or a mess, depending on how you like to look at these things. Thanks to David Tame, our Birmingham reporter, speaking there, and before him, Mike Phillips, BizNow's UK editor. I've put links to some of the stories that we've done on this subject in the episode notes. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can rate and write it a review if you're so inclined because it helps the show grow its listenership and it helps other people who are interested in the kinds of topics we cover find us. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening. 